Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Well, it was uh, 176 years ago yesterday that uh, Karl Marx uh, published the Communist Manifesto. And this comes against the backdrop in 1848 of enormous revolutionary activity throughout Europe. And it's just stunning. Uh, I thought it would be worthwhile to take time today to understand better what this uh, flurry was all about. And we're uh, delighted to have with us to do that Dr. Paul Kengor. He's the author of The Devil in Karl Marx. Uh, he, as you know, has been with us many times before. And uh, his most recent book has been The Worst of Indignities, The Catholic Church on Slavery. He's also published The Devil and Bella Dodd, and uh, he teaches at uh, Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. He's a senior academic fellow at the Institute for Youth, excuse me, for Faith and Freedom, and he is the editor of the American Spectator. Paul, good to have you here again. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Al. Good to be back. 176 years ago since the Communist Manifesto was published yesterday, uh, this has got to be one of the most influential books in really the his I guess the history of the world because it it goes beyond the Western world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No question about it, Al. So you yeah, published February twenty first, eighteen forty eight, and um, it can be said definitively that no other ideology in all of history has been responsible for so many deaths. Yeah, I mean this is this is not disputed. Yeah, the, the co- communists, communism in the 20th century, uh, according to sources like like the Harvard University Press book, the Black Book of Communism, mm-hmm. which was published at the end of the 20th century, said that the communist governments were responsible for the deaths of at least 100 million people yeah. in the 20th century alone, and and uh, and that's a conservative figure because the the, the Black Book only says about 20 million, right, deaths under Stalin in the Soviet Union. And there's other sources like um, Alexander Yakovlev, who was Gorbachev's chief reformer. He published a book around 2003 through Yale University Press called A Century of Violence in Soviet Russia. And he was given the task of counting up the skulls, if yeah. you will, Good. to try to find, you know, figure out, yeah, how many, how many people do they kill? And he said that, that, you know, quote, Stalin alone annihilated 60 to 70 million people. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And then the the Black Book says that the most deaths were under Mao, which was about 65 million. But the latest numbers on Mao are probably over 70 million. Mm. And uh, and by the way, none of those estimates include, and I think you and I could say this as, as Catholics on this Catholic show, um, they, they don't include the number of abortions, right? And that that's that would be fair to include under communism because it, it, communist governments abortion exploded under communist governments, unlike any other governments in the history of humanity, to the point where by the nineteen by the nineteen seventies in the Soviet Union, they were averaging, according to official Soviet health ministry statistics about seven to eight million abortions per year, Mm. per year, in the 70s alone. And then you look at what China did with the one-child policy, what abortion did in Cuba, behind the Iron Curtain. 
So, you know, a hundred million, according to the Black Book of Communism, you know, which would be purges, famine, gulag. Right. Okay. But but you could add probably at least another hundred million uh, through a through abortion wars. Uh, it was Hitler and Stalin together through the Hitler-Stalin Pact who launched World War II. I mean, there's there's no other ideology in history as, yeah. as deadly as communism. It is it, amazing uh, that when we when people think of the uh, a, a demonic or satanic figure or the, the a figure by which we judge human evil, Hitler's always almost always the name that comes up first. And yet Hitler was small potatoes <laughs> compared yeah. to communist leaders. Well, that's right. And, and our church said in a number of encyclicals, like, does any redemptorist in, uh, in 1937 on, on atheist to communism, it, it said, it said the, it, what, the, the, the enemy that we're facing is, is, not of, is not so much of the political order, but the spiritual order. Mm-hmm. And, and in, in fact, two years before the Communist Manifesto was even published, um, about two years, this would have been December 1846, Pope Pius IX, in one of the first encyclicals of his long pontificate, which ran from 1846 to 1878, uh, he published Qui Pluribus, which, which warned of the evils of this, 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 this nefarious new diabolical ideology called communism, yeah. which, yeah. which just to show you how, how profound, and I think how genuinely spirit-led the magisterium of the Catholic Church is, it, that was December 1846, yeah. and the Communist Manifesto wasn't even published, published yeah. Yeah. yeah, until February 1848. So, so the Church saw this way out in front, Divinity Redemptorist, Rerum Novarum, Quadragesimo Anno, all these other encyclicals, they said uh, you know, this, this, this is an ideology orchestrated by, to directly quote Divinity Redemptorist, by the sons of darkness. The Church called it a satanic scourge. Hmm. So not just, not just another ideology, this isn't just like the Democrats or Republicans and tax cuts, right? right? Right. This is an altogether different uh, cat, animal, beast altogether. Let's talk about Karl Marx in this respect. What was his religious, spiritual background? He he was, I know, an explicit atheist at some point. But what was that early on in his life? Yeah, so he was born in May 1818, um, ironically, in the town of Trier, Germany. Uh, Trier is spelled like Trier, T-R-I-E-R. And there is, um, this will ring a bell with a lot of Catholics, there is a great cathedral in Trier that was founded in the 4th century. Yeah. And, and it was built by St. Helena, the, 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 the mother of Constantine, of all people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And, and in fact, it's uh, among the artifacts that she brought back from the Holy Land, she claimed to have brought back the crown of thorns, which is in Notre Dame, uh, the Holy Lance, which is at the Vatican. And she also claimed to have found the Holy Robe of Jesus, which is actually in that cathedral in Trier. Hmm. And in fact, uh, Marx, in one of his literally diabolical poems, he wrote, he wrote poems, poetry, plays about the devil, um, has, the, has the demonic character who's 
sawing on his violin and summoning up the powers of darkness. Uh, Marks in the costume design that he created, too, for the for the play has that character wearing the holy robe of Jesus wow. as he's doing this. Yeah, yeah, that's that's Marx. So, <laughs> so, so Marx grew up within the, uh, can't make this stuff up, right? Right. Uh, Marx grew up outside of the, of the, of the cathedral in Trier. Uh, by the way, he and Ingalls, when they were working on the, on the Communist Manifesto in Brussels, where uh, Marx and Ingalls were working on it, they both had apartments um, it, right outside of the cathedral of, of St. Michael the Archangel. So they're doing their kind of dirty work in the shadows of these of these 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 cathedrals, right? Wow. Michael the Archangel of all things, right? Defend us in battle. I know protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. It's yeah, spiritual warfare, uh, right there in the on the pages of history going on. Right there. Wow. Right there. Yeah. And yeah. So so Marx was born in May 1818, and he was born into a Jewish family that had many rabbis, even Orthodox rabbis, but his, um, his father had converted to Christianity, and by the way, he converted to Lutheranism, whereas Marx had other people in his family, other uncles, um, who converted to Catholicism, as did really most of the Jewish converts in the Trier area converted to Catholicism. But his father converted to Lutheranism. Uh, the, Marx's mother resisted resisted converting herself, but Marx, she kind of gave in around the age of five or six. Um, Carl was baptized into the faith. So he became a fairly uh, a fairly committed Christian through his youth, into his teenage years, and then it all kind of, uh, you know, I guess he literally went to hell in a handbasket yeah. uh, when, when, he, when he went to college. So, kind of like today, right? Yeah. <laughs> things, things haven't changed much. Yeah, it was there in college that he really lost the faith. Now, there have been people uh, over the decades, uh, I've seen them write that he was involved in seances or occultic activity or black masses and things of that sort. Did you ever come across that kind of stuff? I never came across that, but, but in my book, The Devil and Karl Marx, I, I deal with those reports and and some of them that people claim yeah. um, seem like you know demonic ceremonies or, sat- or satanic rituals, but I don't think you even need to go that far, Al. I mean, if you just if you just read some of his poems and you know, talking about uh, you look at the sword that stabs dark you know, deep erringly within thy soul. Where did I get it? The, you know, the, the the prince of darkness sold it to me. Um, you know, my, 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 my heart once, once committed to heaven is now committed to hell. He has these really chilling poems and plays with where, where he took words like Ulanem, which, which meant Emmanuel and twisted it, converted mm-hmm. it, turned it upside down. And, you know, all these devil references he had, Marx actually had a favorite line. So if somebody asks, you know, Paul Kengor or Al Cresta, if we have a, favorite line, we might quote a Bible verse or a quote from a saint or you know, a statement like, be not afraid or something like that. Sure. Mark said, uh, Mark said, oh yeah, that's easy. It's, it's from Goethe's Faust, mm-hmm. and, it's, and it's the Mephistopheles character. And the line <laughs> is this, everything that exists deserves to perish. 
Everything that exists deserves to perish. And people said, his kids even said, he would chant Faust. And the Mephistopheles character was the demon, the yes, devil character. Right, right. So that, that, you know, that's, Marx was this you know, nihilistic, destructive character who, whose very credo was just that. Everything that, that exists deserves to perish. So here's a, this is a very dark, very dark view of reality that he holds mm. from early on. Very dark. Yeah. Uh, we're going to continue conversation with Dr. Paul Kengor. The Devil and Karl Marx, uh, the name of his book. Uh, he also has The Devil and Belladad. We are, our discussion today is occasioned by the anniversary of the publication of the Communist Manifesto. And uh, again, 1848. And this was an important year uh, in European history and also in the history of the church. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Let me uh, encourage you to start your day off with the Mass on EWTN. It's every morning. At 8 Eastern, EWTN offers the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass from Our Lady of the Angels Chapel. It's live every morning, and they can send a link to your email to join in every day. So to learn more, visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. With me is Dr. Paul Kengor. We're talking about the Communist Manifesto, uh, Karl Marx. We're talking about this incredible conflict between light and darkness played out uh, right in human history here. Paul, 1848 was a, an important, important year. How do historians account for the explosion of revolutionary activity all over the continent on 1848? Yeah, especially in France, right? And and, and with in France, you know, that year in particular, February 1848, March 1848, uh, and and really, you probably got to take it back to the French Revolution more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, French Revolution 1793, 1794, and it was, in fact between 1793 and 1794, the Jacobins and Maximilian Robespierre they guillotined 40,000 people in, in in Paris alone. 40,000 people guillotine, guillotine. And the, you know, Lenin would later call his, his, Bolsh- his Bolsheviks glorious Jacobins, glorious Jacobins. Oh. And I had, I had a professor in graduate school, Al, who used to call the Jacobins the first communists. <laughs> and, I mean, they, they, you know, they technically weren't, but when you looked at the collectivism, the nationalism, and especially the war on religion, the clergy, and even human nature, in many ways they, they, they look like the first communists. And they tried to reinvent everything from, I mean, even the calendar, even the seven-day week. They tried to, they tried to reconfigure the seven-day week into a ten-day week to wipe out the idea of uh, the biblical seven-day week. Um, the year 1794 was rechristened the year zero. Yeah. Uh, and, and by the way, the Pol Pot and and his group, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, a couple hundred years later, um, in 1975, would rechristen that year the year zero. <laughs> and and Pol Pot and and his they were they were from Cambodia, 
but his group was all radicalized in Paris as well in the 1970s. So you see the kind of the ongoing, you know, you know toxic fruits of, of this ideology. But uh, it, it was a war on religion, a war against the clergy, um, a war against classes, and and so I would I would really begin all of it in um, you know in very very Catholic uh, Paris, France mm-hmm. in the 1790s. Yeah. So this is this this is a pushback, uh, an attempt to overthrow the existing order. Uh, and the church played an important part in that existing order. Is that right? That's right. And and Marx and Engels, although they were both German, they met in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's where. And and in fact, uh, Richard Pipes, the late great Soviet Russian historian, Sovietologist, he says that that the very term communism itself was coined in Paris hmm. at some point in the 1840s. And what Marx and Engels really did, Al, was there was a group called the Communist League, which was kind of like a precursor to the Communist Party. Okay. It was made up of about 40 to 50 um, Europeans, mainly Germans, uh, primarily. And they all got together, and they were meeting in, in France in particular. And they said, okay, we need a statement of what we believe. We need a kind of programmatic statement, a book, a booklet a sort of manifesto to explain what we as communists believe. Okay, so it's kind of a catechism for communists. Exactly. And in fact, um, Engels wrote a letter to Marx where he said, he said, give a little more thought to our communist confession of faith, as he (laughs) called it. Wow. Right? And he said, I think we should drop the, yeah, we should drop the catechetical form and call it simply the manifesto. Let's Mm. go with the manifesto. And so that's what they went with. Atheism was part and parcel of communism. Sometimes you hear people say that, um, you know, there, there is the early church was uh, Christian communism, but uh, <laughs> I, and it drives me nuts when I hear that. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> but well, <laughs> but atheism is is in, is integral uh, to communism, isn't it? I mean. It, Everywhere, it, it everywhere is. pops up as a political, socio-political form. Uh, atheism is warp and woof. So, yes, yeah, right. And, and also, if you could, maybe you could post. I, I wrote a piece for Crisis Magazine a year or two ago called "The Early Church Was Not Socialist," <laughs> yes. and I deal, yeah, and I deal with Acts four thirty two to four thirty five, which we end up reading right, usually in the lectionary, yeah, uh, around Easter every year. And I get emails, Al, I get emails from, from Catholics all around the country saying, you know, my liberal priest today preached on this and said that this just shows that the early apostles were socialists, right? Yeah. And, and, and no, it does not. Okay? <laughs> and, and, and by the way, and I quote in that, in that crisis piece, Pope Francis, who's often accused of being you know, communist, Marxist, socialist, and, and Francis says, Francis says, he says, he says, no, that was not communism. That was Christianity. Yeah. That was pure yeah. Christianity. I mean, that's first century stuff right there, right? I mean, the, you know, communism is invented about, you know, about 1,700 years later. And just because they talk about sharing in communism and holding some things in common doesn't mean that you look at uh, 
acts of private charity among early disciples and apostles choosing to live in community and uh, sharing some of their property. By the way, they're allowed to own property. The communism says, uh, the Communist Manifesto says, the entire theory of the communist may be summed up in the single sentence, abolition of private property. Mm-hmm. So you're not allowed to own property under communism. The early disciples were, and they chose on their own voluntarily to sell some of their property and bring their proceeds to help one another, their Christian brothers and sisters living together under Christ in Christian charity. Now, under communism, not only do they abolish private property, they abolish religion. You know, they're, 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 they're against religion. So you can't look at that and say, oh, look, they shared, and, <laughs> and oh, and communism, too, talks about it. Wow, I guess they were communists. You can only, no. you can only share no. if you've got ownership. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and, and also too, and this is, and I've heard, I had a student last year at a Catholic school tell me that um, she talked to somebody who was uh, a, a, a leader of an order at a particular area, and and it, it was a, it was a Benedictine group, and 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 she said that he actually told her, oh yeah, well we're communists because because they they did sharing and lived in community. And I said, no, he doesn't understand. Right. I, I mean, what what percentage of Americans are Benedictines living in community? Right. <laughs> About zero point zero 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 one percent. So if they want to get together and 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 voluntarily agree to share of their stuff. God bless them. That's great. Sure. Communism is taking one hundred percent of everybody in a state, and by militantly atheistic government fiat forcing all of them under abolition of property and guns and gulags to share their stuff, whether they want to or not, in an atheistic society. It's completely different from the Benedictines and Franciscans and Dominicans and every other religious order. You know, I think... No similarity at all. Hopefully, hopefully people will realize this more and more as the threat of uh, Chinese communism uh, begins to uh, rise in our public imagination. I, I... you know, we were so delighted with the collapse of Soviet-style communism that uh, I think for a lot of us, we stopped, we took our eye off the ball uh, about Maoist-style uh, communism and uh, Deng right. Xiaoping's communism and, and now Xi Jinping's communism. But we've got... Well, and it, go ahead. Yeah. And it, it doesn't help when we have Catholic publications like America Magazine. Right, the, the right. American Jesuit flagship yes. publishing a piece in the summer of 2019 called "Quote the Catholic Case for Communism." Yeah. Unquote. Yeah, and yeah. and there is no Catholic case for communism, and there are dozens of church statements and encyclicals and popes who would say that there's no Catholic case for communism. Even Pope Francis has said in 2013, "Quote the Marxist ideology is wrong." Unquote. Yeah. So it, even even all the communists would say there's no Catholic case for communism because they all said the communists had to be atheists. Yeah. So to have that kind of an article being published in a in a leading Catholic publication like that is 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 frankly not just outrageous but kind of scandalous. Yeah, and it, it, and, and it's so confusing uh, for people who you know who are you know assume the assume goodwill here you know so. Right. Uh, ignorance. Yeah. I'll, I'll blame it on ignorance. It's not diabolical, right? right. I mean, they, they actually think that, they, that they've come up with some kind of a new idea there about why apparently Catholics could be communists. And, and the piece was actually written by 
a Canadian author who I believe is a, a member of the Canadian Communist Party. Oh, really? A Catholic. Hmm. And, and by the way, the, the church for a long time, Pius XII and others, banned Catholics from becoming communists. Yeah. You could be excommunicated if you became a communist. Well, the, the, so this kind of stuff isn't even known. The, the, the writings of uh, popes in the great social encyclicals are explicitly uh, condemning of socialism and communism both, whether it's Leo XIII, you know, or, or going up to John Paul II and Santissimo Sanos. Yeah, over and over um, for social justice Catholics who are listening who love Leo XIII and like to quote Rerum Novarum, uh, man, you need to read some of his other encyclicals. He issued some scathing condemnations yeah. of uh, not just communism, but all yeah. saying that, that they were both wrong. And uh, 40 years after that, Quadragesimo Anno, which means 40 years, it's yep. 40 years after Rerum Novarum, 1931, that's the one where it says a Catholic cannot be a socialist, yeah. period. Yep. And, and in fact, there's a great line in there from Pius XI. I always remember the phraseology. It's kind of neat. He said, he said Catholics um, who, who want to help the poor and share their wealth and so forth, should not quote connive error in any way, right? <laughs> they they should they should simply do the gospel, just do what Jesus would do, right? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Not what would Marx do? <laughs> Marx would abolish property and religion. Yeah, just just be a Christian. Yeah, just yeah. just do that. Rerum Novarum in paragraphs five to sixteen. Uh, over and over again rejects so socialist proposals to abolish private property. The, the Catholic encyclical right. tradition is very, very big on the proper stewardship of private property. You need private property. And good afternoon, I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Paul Kengor. He is the author of The Devil and Karl Marx. And we're taking the anniversary of the uh, publication. Uh, again, it's February 21st, uh, yesterday, uh, 1848, that uh, we saw the publication of the Communist Manifesto. And uh, again, communism has gone on to be the most destructive and death-dealing ideology in the history of the human race. And so... Uh, Paul and I have been talking a little bit about confusion surrounding communism and socialism, and especially in Christian circles, where there are many people who, of course, like the idea of uh, the sharing of goods, holding things in common, and there are even those who would claim that uh, this is early Christian communism can be seen in Acts chapter 4. Not true. Communism, by its very definition, requires the abolition of private property. So you can't be sharing uh, if you don't own anything. Uh, I, with, com with Chinese communism in, you know, ahead, uh, what should we know? Is there anything distinctive about the Chinese version of communism that uh, we might want to be aware of, uh, you know, just so that we don't fall into any uh, problems. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, it's indeed very distinctive. In fact, so much so that when I lecture on China in my comparative politics class at Grove City College, I simply refer to it, Al, as the Chinese system, right? Yeah. Okay. Because, I mean, they've figured out, among other things, that if you actually banish all private property, <laughs> I mean, you're, just, you're not going to be able to have that economic behemoth that you want, right? right? right. So, so they, they've, starting with Deng Xiaoping in 1978-79, they started doing what Deng called, uh, called um, socialism with Chinese characteristics, mm-hmm. so, which is a way of, it's, it's a really curious thing, where, where modern China is less economically communist than politically communist, which in a way kind of doesn't make sense, right? But, but you, have this, you have this communist party-led state where, like all other communist party-led states, no other political parties are permitted. So the, the party controls everything. But they also allow key market freedoms and property ownership. So, um, so they're able to be economically productive. So it's not really true economic communism. Yeah. Um, and even in America today, I mean, the types of communism that you see in America today are more like you know, cultural forms of Marxism, gender Marxism, even race-based Marxism. So it's a really different thing from what you saw under Marx and Engels. And I mean, Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto, you just look at the 10-point plan in the, in the Communist Manifesto. You know, point one, abolition of private property. Uh, it, it, it talks about abolition of all right of inheritance. Hmm. Abolition of all right of inheritance, yeah. which is a real kind of hypocritical howler because Marx and Engels got all their money from their parents. <laughs> That's right. And, yeah, <laughs> and, and after, after Marx's parents cut him off and then Marx's wife's parents cut them off and both Marx and his wife, Jenny, said that Carly, we wish you would start earning some capital rather than just writing about it. Uh, you know, then, they, then they went to Engels' father and got every bit that they could from Engels' father. I mean, Marx, Marx's family would have literally starved to death if not for Engels' father's money. So, so the, you know, and Marx had a, had a family nursemaid that, that his wife Jenny's family lent to the Marx family because they said, we can't give you any more money in good conscience, period. So, so they, they, they lent the Marx family the nursemaid that grew up with Marx's wife. Her name was Lenchen, and Marx got her pregnant and behind his wife's back. And, uh. and Marx never paid her a penny, ever. And then when the child was born, Marx refused to acknowledge it was his. Ingalls stepped forward and says, well, you know, I have no reputation that I need to worry about. You know, I'll, I'll just say it's my kid. Let's name him Freddie. So they named him <laughs> Frederick. Friedrich, Freddie, yeah. and the kid never got any inheritance from Marx. So, uh, you know, it's, but it, it's just full of all these contradictions um, from Marx and Engels. And a lot of times that in modern communism, modern forms, they've jettisoned a lot of these ideas because they know you can't have a society with no private property or no right of inheritance because yeah. it'll completely fail. That's right. Yeah. It's, it's amazing, isn't it? The, the, the rejection it, it's not. It's not just when we think of atheism, we think people denying the existence of God. But it often comes down to they're denying the existence of any kind of intrinsic moral order, and uh, you see that in the lives of some of these guys. Oh, that's absolutely right. And and in fact, it says in the Communist Manifesto, there's a section 
where where Marx and Engels write about you know all, abolishing all morality, all religion, and all eternal truths. Yeah. And and they and they say flatly in the Communist Manifesto, they say communism represents the most radical rupture in traditional relations. They call. Uh, I mean, if anyone can, if anyone has access to an electronic copy of the Communist Manifesto, by the way, it's not a long book. You can read it in a few hours. It's right. only about 50 to 60 pages long. Just look up the word um, abolition or abolish. It's, it's, it's the most frequently used book in the, or, or word in the entire text, um, which, again, goes with Marx's personal credo. You know, every, you know, everything, uh, everything, everything that exists should perish. So these guys were um, abolitionists who completely wanted to redo human nature, morality, and basically remake it in their own image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It tears down every traditional uh, society. Uh, it is destructive by its very nature. Uh, what what do you make of the current uh, fascination? with uh, socialism that we see, especially uh, among America's young, youth and college-age students? Yeah, I think I think the reason there, Al, is that they, they don't know what it is, honestly. And, I mean, when you, when you sit through colleges and seminars, and unfortunately some Catholic colleges, right, and, and they tell you that, uh, you know, the basis of the Communist Manifesto and Communist Belief is a desire to share and help your fellow man. And by the way, there are surveys on this by groups like Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, where they'll ask people, young people, do you support socialism? And they'll get these really high numbers. Yes, we do. We think it's good, right? 40, 43%. And then they'll say, well, explain to us in a phrase what you think it is. Yeah. And they'll say, well, it's about helping your fellow man. Yeah. It's about yeah. sharing, right? They don't say things like, Oh well, it's about abolishing all right of inheritance, <laughs> all eternal truth, all religion, right, all my right. private property, uh, and, and the most radical rupture in traditional relations, you know, overthrowing everything that exists. Uh, so, so you, know, I, I, and if there's one kind of ray of hope in all of this, it's that if we actually could teach them the truth about it, then hopefully they won't be praising socialism and communism. So that's why I think shows like yours and what we're doing here is so crucial yeah. because they need to be educated because they're not getting it from uh, from 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 their schools. Right, right. No, it, it is. It's very frustrating to see it, and uh, there is a long history here, and especially for Catholics, there's a long encyclical tradition dealing with this. In dealing with the problems that uh, the social problems that uh, Marx thought he was addressing, so you you have in in the end in the Catholic uh, social doctrine, you've got uh, ways of discussing uh, labor and management. You have ways of uh, discussing uh, the relationship um, between the worker, uh, the family. And I, I, it's just unfortunately, the ignorance that is widespread, I think, among American youth is also uh, absent among many uh, Catholic youth. They don't; sim they simply don't have any systematic instruction in Catholic social teaching, and so they're subject to. They're easily victimized 
by people who, you know, invoke phrases like social justice uh, and then define that in ways that the church doesn't define it. So you've got a lot of that going on, I think. Yeah, no, that's right. They're easily duped. And, you know, a lot of the social justice Catholics hate it when you say um, social justice. No, you guys are advocating socialism, right? Yeah. But in a lot in a lot of cases, Al, right, that's indeed what they're doing. And, yeah. and, 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 you know, social justice, there's a lady at my church who wears a shirt to the, to the, to the pro-life, um, the, the annual March for Life, January 22nd. It says social justice begins in the womb, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so it's, it's not, social justice is not supposed to be like a substitute phrase for you know, your desire to pursue socialist um, economic policies. Right. But for a lot of people, unfortunately, it's become that. Yeah, it really have. I think so. I think I think that's that's very true. In your in your teaching experience, um, you teach at a Christian college, so I'm assuming it's not quite the same as teaching in a, a public university. Uh, do you find that people are younger people are open to learning? about, you might say, uh, the Black Book of Communism? Are they open to hearing the kind of destructive measures uh, that we attribute to uh, communist political policy? Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're really hungry for it, Al. And there's kind of, you know, I find with a lot of of young people today, they've got kind of like a built-in, intuitive sort of nonsense detector, right? Yeah. And, you know, they, they could tell if you're not giving them all the information. And when they actually sit down, as they do, in my, I'm teaching Marxism again this semester at Grove City College. I teach it every spring semester. And when they actually read the Communist Manifesto, <laughs> especially yeah. business majors, practically-minded people, it occurs to them, they, they think, well, how would you do this? Right. Right? I mean, you forcibly relocate everybody, a more equitable distribution of the population across the country, obliterating the distinction between between urban and rural, that's 0.5 in the in the 10 point plan. Yeah. You're thinking, well, that means picking people up and moving them from their houses and forcibly leveling them in populations. All how would you do that by anything other than guns and gulags? Right. It's like, well, of course, yeah, of course, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's an ideology that screams out for despotism. Yeah. And and if if Marx and Engels had turned in. Their book, if they had turned it in as a paper and a course, <laughs> right, in one of my classes, I would have, I, aside from giving it an F, I might have wanted to call the police, right? <laughs> and, and, and by the way, a lot of people back then, including the Prussian uh, police spies, the, the German government, and the Catholic Church, they read the documents and they said, oh, this is really bad. Yep. If yep. these guys want to do this, they're going to kill a lot of people. Yeah. This has to be stopped. Yeah. So, so you know, they they realized by reading it on its face how destructive these these policies were that they were advocating. And there's something ironic too in that in Russia we saw the first large so-called Marxist revolution when in fact Marx expected his revolution to take place in an industrialized society where in Tsarist Russia you had lots and lots and lots of peasants. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Britain, France, or Germany. And I think there's something uniquely diabolical 
and that they went after one of the most religious countries in the world. Yeah, which which Russia was Russian Orthodoxy. Yep, yeah, very true. And in the Western Hemisphere, Cuba, and in Korea, Pyongyang used to be called the Jerusalem of the East. Interesting, I didn't That's know that. In North Korea, yep, wow. very religious places is, are the ones that they took that wow. they went after. Paul, thanks. Always good talking with you. All right, Al. Dr. Paul Kengar, The Devil, and Karl Marx.